You're listening to a podcast from Burley Heads Church of Christ, from Burley Heads on the Gold Coast. That's a small picture, I do apologise. The Brady Bunch, that's right. What about this one? This used to be one of my favourite shows. Do you remember that show? Michael J's Fox first show, Family Ties, fantastic show. I don't know how many years that was on TV, but I loved it when that was on. This one's a little bit weirder because they're all wearing the same gear. Partridge Family, yep, you might remember that one. And what about this last one? This is probably the more recent one. Remember that one? Tim the Toolman Taylor. The show was called Home Home Improvements. Steve Nazer, a great, great show. What I liked about these uh, shows was just seeing how the uh, family would operate. And you'd watch the, the show and you'd be intrigued on how the, 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 the children would talk to each other and they'd get up with the parents and it was just captivating. But amongst all of the things that you would watch, you would see, like, yeah, it's a, show, it's a family show, it's a made-up show, but there would be this little, there's a bit, fairly, a bit of dysfunction happening in the, in the family unit on TV. And so I thought today uh, we're going to have a look into this idea of, of uh, having a, 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 an answer to the secret of what makes a good family unit operate. Or in other words, what's the secret to finding peace amongst the chaos that exists in every family? You see, once upon a time, you used to sit at a dining table and have dinner. Now, families would probably sit around the television and on the couch to have dinner. Once upon a time, you would sit and talk to one another. Now you sit and talk to a screen. Technology is actually robbing the families of precious family time. I could sit down and say to my son, would you like to play a game of Scrabble? He goes, well, I can play that on the iPad, Dad. I don't really need you to sit and play Scrabble with me. I'm like, boy, wash your mouth out. Let's play Scrabble. Let's get the scrabble go. The technology, I love it and I hate it. It's a love-hate relationship. You can't live without it, but it's actually stealing time away from our families. Alan Hayes says this, the data collected over three decades shows a significant change in the family unit. There's an increase in divorce rates, a decline in marriage rates and family size, and a shift to double-income families and paid childcare. I think we'd all agree that the family unit is becoming harder and harder as the days and the years roll on. One thing that hasn't changed over the years is the interpersonal relationships that operate in the family. That hasn't changed for, I reckon, around 4,000 years. This morning, I want to look at a guy called Joseph. And I want to look into his dysfunctional family. And it gives me a little bit of hope because my family is far from perfect. My family is actually dysfunctional as well. But when I look at Joseph's family, I go, wow, mine's not that bad. It's actually pretty good compared to his family. Let me rewind a little bit. And please keep up with me because I'm going to to try and piece his family unit together in a couple of minutes. It's a big story if you know the story of Joseph. We're going to go back into uh, before Joseph was even born and his father Jacob existed. Jacob walked over, we know, to a well, a water well one day and he saw a lady called Rachel. Blew his socks off. He was like, wow, who is this lady? She said, I'm Rachel. 
The Bible says she was pleasant to look at. Interesting wording. So he's sort of noticed Rachel. Rachel's noticed Jacob. Rachel runs back to her father who's called Laban. And he, she says to Laban, her father, she goes, Dad, I've met a guy and his name's called Jacob. Laban says, I need to meet Jacob. Bring him. I need to meet him. And we know that Jacob turns up to Laban's house. They get talking. A month rolls on. And Jacob is serving Laban on the farm. He's actually helping him out on the farm. And Laban sort of, you know, in fairness, says to, to Jacob at the end of the month, he goes, hey, Jacob, you can't just keep serving on the land here. I need to pay you. How much would you like to get paid? Jacob, he says, well, Laban, now you mention it, I'd like to marry your daughter. That's what I want to do. Laban says, well, that's okay. You've got to give me seven hard years of work before I hand my daughter over. And in Genesis 29, if you have Genesis 29, open it up with me. We read, for Jacob, Genesis 29, verse 20, we read, it says, So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. What a great answer to the father-in-law. Hey Laban, these seven years, geez, they've only seemed like a few days. I'm so in love with your daughter Rachel. Come on, let's get married. And we know the wedding day happened. Jacob steps up in his best to marry Laban's daughter Rachel. The next day after the marriage ceremony, we read a little bit further down in Genesis 29, says uh, Genesis 25, uh, sorry, chapter 29, verse 25, when morning came, there was Leah. What? There was Leah. Hang on a second. Like imagine Jacob's eyes the next morning after he thought he married Rachel and there was Leah. What? So he says, Laban. My man, seven years of hard work on the land. And I didn't even marry Rachel. I married Leah. Laban says, oh, Jacob, I forgot to tell you. It's custom to marry the eldest first. And that's Leah. So, happy birthday. There's Leah. And Jacob's like, hang on a second, Laban. I really love Rachel. So Laban says, okay, here's what you can do. You go away, have your week's bridal ceremony, honeymoon, come back, you can marry Rachel, but you owe me seven more years of work. How's that for a deal? Like, okay, I've got to, I'll give you seven more years, but you, I'm, I'm doing what? I'm marrying Rachel as well? So we know uh, uh, Jacob takes off, he has his week with uh, Leah, comes back, marries Rachel and does another seven hard years of work for Laban. Two wives under the same roof. I have one wife. That's, that's hard work. I love her, but one's enough. Two, that's chaos. That is a dysfunctional little family going on right there under the same roof. 
So we know as time goes on, Leah starts to have babies. She has four babies to Jacob. Rachel is seeing her sister Leah have babies. Rachel's starting to get a bit jealous, a bit, hey, what's going on, Leah? Stop having all the babies. I would like some babies as well. She screams at Jacob and she says, Jacob, what's going on? I need some babies. Jacob's like, okay, well, I'm trying. Nothing's happening. So Rachel goes, oh, no, I'm going to give you my servant. And then maybe my servant will have some babies with you. Goodness, two wives is hard enough. Now, you get, what's going on here? So Rachel hands her servant maid over to Jacob. She has two babies to Jacob. Leah sees this going on and says, hang on a second. Wait a minute, Rachel, you can't do that because I've got a servant maid as well. She hands Jacob her servant maid to which he has another two children. Complicated, really complicated. So, at the age of 10, this is how Joseph's family unit looks like. I've got to fast forward a whole lot of things for a G-rated version church talk. You can read it in Genesis, 14 chapters, it's an incredible story. But at the age of 10, this is how Joseph's family looks. His father is a polygamist. There's four uh, women or wives in his life. Leah has seven children. Leah's maid has two children to Jacob. Rachel's maid has two children to Jacob and Rachel has two children as well. If you know the story, Rachel had Joseph who was, uh, uh, Rachel had Joseph who was uh, Jacob's favourite, there's so many names in my head right now, and last child that uh, Rachel ever had was Benjamin and she died giving birth uh, to Benjamin. So at the age of 10, Jacob is a polygamist. He's got women and wives. He's got uh, his relationship with Laban. His father-in-law has actually split through a bad business deal. Just, it, it went south. They're not talking anymore. Uh, Joseph's brothers, all the brothers are now murderers. Because if you know the story, uh, Dinah, who was uh, Joseph's only sister, actually got mishandled by some men. And so Jacob's uh, br- uh, sons all sort of went out of their way and just killed a whole bunch of people. So now they're murderers. And Joseph's uh, grandfather is, uh, has passed away, Isaac, and also his mother, Rachel, has also passed away. I thought my life was complicated. And I read this and I go, wow, I've actually got a pretty easy life compared to what Joseph's going through. So he's 10 years old. Fast forward with me another five years, uh, seven years. Sorry, we'll go to 17 years old. Joseph was a very, uh, pretty well upright sort of guy. He didn't really have anything going wrong with him at all. He was a, he was a, a, a fairly good guy. There was, there was one thing they reckon that Joseph had that took him down. And that was, if you know the story, it was, it was pride. Joseph was a fairly prideful sort of guy. And at 17, we see Joseph get his brothers around together and he says to the brothers, I've had a dream, God's spoken to me. And this is what God has said. You see, we were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose up and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Imagine the brothers going, sorry, what did you say? 
His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. So Joseph now has all his brothers turn against him. And we know the story. They throw him into a cistern to die, to rot. And they, one of the brothers who, who liked him more than the others pulled him out and said, hey, let's just sell him into slavery. And we know Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt for 20 years. During those 20 years, I can't imagine what Joseph would have been thinking about his family, particularly about his brothers that got rid of him. In those 20 years, if you flick through Genesis to chapter 41, verse 41, it says, So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. I love Joseph's character. Amidst the chaos, he honoured God through his actions. His character reflected God. And through his character reflecting God, there was favour shown to him through Pharaoh, who made him second in charge of the whole land. So 20 years pass. Joseph is now second in charge of the whole of Egypt and there's a famine that breaks out. The land of Canaan is hungry. People are starving. And Jacob, who is Joseph's dad, hears that Egypt actually has food because Joseph has been a really good steward and listened to God through his dreams to actually help Egypt with the food. Does it make sense so far? So Jacob says to his sons, He had learned that there was grain in Egypt and he said to his sons, why do you keep looking at each other? Boys, why do you keep just looking at each other? I've heard there's food in Egypt. He says, go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Boys, come on, get moving. Get out to Egypt. We're starving here. So now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. The story gets interesting, doesn't it? So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him and their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he said. Now pause there for a moment. What would you do in this situation. If you were Joseph and your brothers who disowned you, who sold you into slavery, who tried to kill you, turn up, haven't recognized him, they get on their knees before him, as told previously some 20 odd years earlier, and said, hey, we're hungry. Can we get some food? Joseph's lights have gone, oh my goodness, Are you serious? Like here are my brothers, the ones that I've thought about for so many years, the ones that sold me into slavery, the ones that threw me in prison. They now want my help? I've sort of gone over this story in my mind a few times. And as a pastor here this morning, let me say I've had some unpastoral thoughts of what I would do. I would possibly 
get away from me. I love the story of Joseph because he teaches me a whole lot of stuff. To fast forward through the story, we know that Joseph actually says to his brothers, hey, I'm your brother Joseph. Remember the one that you tried to get rid of? Here I am, surprise, and you need my help. We know Joseph forgave them. He gave them grain. He sent them back. He actually moved his entire family and his father Jacob to be in the land of Egypt. And Jacob and Joseph had this beautiful reunion again. They all got back together. A beautiful, beautiful outcome that Joseph chose to take a forgiving heart. You see, friends, this morning is, I think of the family unit. As I think of the family unit, let's go to the immediate family, to your family, the one that I don't know, but you know. Families are made up of all these personalities, I've got three little rug rats at home and they are so different. There's arguments going on and there's, you know, that's mine, that's not mine. There's all these little, that's, you know, little things that happen in our household. They probably happen in your household because we're different. Let's extend that into the church, into Burley. Let's go specific here for Burley Church of Christ. You are a family, a unit supposed to be knitted together through Jesus. You've got one common theme, and that's Jesus at the center. But it's difficult because we all carry different personalities and different preferences. Imagine for a moment if God made us all the same. We looked the same, we talked the same, we wore the same suit, had the same red tie, drove the same car, ate the same food, enjoyed the same coffee, did the same work, had the same job, looked exactly the same. It'd be so predictable. I'd know what Steve was doing tomorrow because you're exactly like me. There's, no, like it's, there's just nothing in that. I don't even have to think about it. But I love that God is his God of creativity. And he's made, it says, all of us unique. He's he's made us all in the image of God, but we are all unique. And the problem with being unique is that we carry our own personality traits and our pride and everything else creeps in. And what can happen if we're not careful is the family unit can start to suffer. It can start to have little dislocations happen. You know, like a dislocation is not bad, it hurts. But it's, it's pretty easy to pop it back into place and it'll, you know, things will start to get better pretty quick. Or sometimes, friends, the church can fracture. And if you've ever had a broken bone, you'll know that breaks or fractures actually hurt. And they're not a quick fix. In fact, it takes a long time to fix a broken relationship. It takes a very long time. The title of this uh, talk today, I've called it, What's the Secret? What is the secret to having peace amongst the chaos that we live in? I think for me, what's the secret in my family, my extended family, where there are dislocations in place at the moment, I can see that. What's the secret to bringing health into this, to, to bring happiness into it? And I truly believe from my own experience that having Jesus at the center of it all brings peace to crazy situations 
Jesus can bring joy to a joyless or a hopeless situation. Jesus can bring healing to where things are broken. And Jesus can bring love, a love that I can't even find inside of me, to my family. And Jesus can bring love into your family. I love hearing the story of Joseph because Joseph had so many options to choose when his brothers dropped to their knees and said, help. But Joseph had God at the center. And the decision that Joseph made was to forgive. Was to forgive and welcome home. To forgive and move forward. You see, the God of the Old Testament had his chosen people and the way the chosen people would gain favor with God is to do things for God. Friends, we live in a New Testament, a new promise era where God said, hey, I'm going to bring something new to this world. His name is Jesus. And Jesus came into this world. I find this absolutely staggering for you and for me. That God's answer to, to, the, to the world and, it's, and the state it's in and the, and the sinful state that when we all see stuff going on every day, flick the news on and you, it's all over the place how the world is a broken place. God says, no, 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 no. I'm going to send my son, the saviour of the world, for you. How do I know that? In Mark 10, 45, it says that Jesus came to serve and not be served and to give his life a ransom for many. That Jesus came to serve you, to help you, to help me in those seemingly impossible situations. Why did he do this? We've already heard it today in communion. I loved it. Thank you, James. Why, why, did, we, why, why did he do this? Why did Jesus come and to serve because he loves you. He loves the world, which is you, so much that he gave his only son. So that we don't have to die and to suffer and to worry and to carry the weight of the world, but to give us life, it says in John, a life to the fullest. We can have eternal life. And that eternal life, I believe, doesn't start when I die. That eternal life starts when I say, Jesus, be the center of my life. I live with a different purpose. I live with a different focus that the world can't give me. I live with Jesus at the center. And so the question I've got this morning for us as we wrap up is where is Jesus in your family where is Jesus right now in your family is Jesus sitting with you as you watch television in the lounge room is Jesus with you in the kitchen when you think do I flick that steak one more time or is it done medium rare or rare is he right there with you is he there in the backyard if you've got kids running around is he there with you as you play with your children is he there with you when your spouse and you aren't seeing eye to eye? And you know what I mean sometimes? You sort of don't quite agree. Is Jesus there with you? Or is Jesus at the 
front of your house at the door is he is he knocking is he ringing that doorbell with the expensive viewfinder thing so you can see who's at your front door is he there going ding dong hello and you can hear the knock you can see it but the choice to open that door and let him in because if I let him in he's going to see a dysfunctional family do you let him in or is Jesus for you here at Burley on a Sunday where you come to church I'm hearing God yeah the word of God it's it's hitting me hard but you walk out of this church you might even put Jesus in the car with you on the way home but you leave him there for the week. It's kind of like taking a big breath, isn't it? If I asked you to inhale and hold your breath, can you hold it for seven days? You can't. See, but we're not designed that way. We're designed to exhale. The church is like you breathe in God on a Sunday. You go out and breathe God out on Monday. Breathe him in on Monday. Breathe him out on Monday. You do that 100,000 times before you come back here on a Sunday. If Jesus is at the centre. We started in Genesis, friends, and we're going to end in the last book called Revelation. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I might come in. That's right. I will come in. And I won't just come in. I'm going to eat with that person, and they're going to eat with me. The question I have is, where is Jesus in your house today? Maybe for some of us, we can see him at the front door. I encourage you to open that door and let him in. It's the best decision you will ever make. Where is Jesus in this church as a family? Is he at the heart? Is he at the center of this church? Maybe Jesus is in your house and I encourage you to to look to Joseph as Joseph had Jesus at the centre and the decisions that we make, sometimes very hard decisions, I think shouldn't be made alone. That we can ask Jesus to come in and say, hey, this is a hard decision, I've got to forgive my brothers and I need your help. Heavenly Father, we love you so much and we love that the words printed in this book are alive and active. And Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your son to perfect some very imperfect people in this world. And so Jesus, I pray this morning that we can all have a fresh breath of you, invite you into our world into our circumstances that seem impossible. And Heavenly Father, we thank you for your divine intervention of family, of relationships. And Lord Jesus, we pray for Burley and we ask that you just bless this church. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you loved us so much. Amen.